Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, a Raku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Chris Hanley talks with Jock Sarong about his new book, The Burning Island which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Conversations uh, from Byron, a series brought to you by the Byron Writers' Festival during what is the strangest year in our all of our histories, uh, a, a COVID year. We're here today to talk to Jock Sarong about his new book, The Burning Island. Welcome. Welcome, Jock. G'day, Chris. How are you? I'm good. And before we talk about the the Burning Island, which uh, which I've just finished, um, I wonder for you and your family what it's been like uh, in Apollo Bay uh, during during COVID. Oh yeah, well, we're a little further west than that. We're out at Port Ferry, and um, we are well out of the the Melbourne metro region. You know, in so far as stage four applies to all of them. So we're stage three. Um, we're wearing masks. We uh, the kids are all at home, so we've got four kids, and they're all in the house. Um, in some ways, it's business as usual in that we've still got access to the water, and um, my working day is largely unchanged. The, the only major difference is having the whole six of us in the house at once, um, all day long, all week long. That gets kind of interesting at times, but um, <laughs> it, it, I think in the main, we're very, very fortunate. Things are pretty good here. From a creative point of view, and, and I'm sure lots of people uh, will be asking writers and creative people this, uh, like as as time moves forward with COVID, what's changed in terms of how you work and and your creative habits, and 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 even your thought patterns during COVID. Yeah, I, I think there's a tendency towards pessimism at times. There's a tendency towards obsessing about numbers and obsessing about media. And um, if you want to make good art of whatever kind, that's a thing that you've got to be wary of and, and not allow it to take over your day and take over your thinking. Um, the There are positive um, aspects to the monotony, to the isolation, to the long silences. Those can be opportunities for contemplation that we weren't getting previously. Um, And so I'm trying to kind of expand the breadth of my reading and the music that I listen to and trying to somehow enable this period in our lives to feed the creative process, to use it as fuel. that doesn't always work. And I think one of the interesting questions, um, if there is uh, an other side to all of this, it's going to be interesting to see what people's output is, whether, you know, it'd be very, very hard to write a contemporary novel now without in some way reflecting pandemic circumstances in it. It would look like a, a slightly unreal world that you're painting. So it's going to taint everything. Um, but I think it's important not to let it overtake everything. Where's music fit with your creative process? Uh, it's a mood thing. I 
I keep playlists for each novel that I write and um, the lyrics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Often lyrics are a really good launching point for ideas. Um, there's a passage or two in The Burning Island where Eliza is very confused romantically, sexually about Dr. Gideon and um, there are Cowboy Junkie songs that I was listening to that talk about a similar idea um, and the lyrics, the words themselves don't find their way in but what they do is spark a line of thought. So I try to keep these playlists that apply to each novel and I just roll through a series of whatever it is, 30 or 40 songs um, and sometimes they're loud and raucous when I'm feeling like the writing needs loud and raucous and, and sometimes they're very, very sedate. I think there's a book just in that last thing we just spoke of. I, I would be very interested to read you and other writers on the topic of the playlists they keep or they make. Have you always been interested in the written lyrics of songs? The I have. Themselves? Um, I, I have this terrible creeping feeling that I'm an absolute philistine where music's concerned and people talk about, you know, you need Brahms or you really need Chopin and um, I'm, I'm just not that cultured. <laughs> but I think that um, even what appears superficially to be the most basic of lyrics can transport you and, um, as I said before, they can kind of strike a flint about other ideas and other combinations of words. It doesn't take very much at all to um, achieve that out of a good lyric. I love words, as you know, but I've never been a lyric man. I'm more a music man, overall, and I love music as well. But I found during COVID uh, that I've gone and sought the lyrics of a bunch of songs, some songs I've known for years, because I've heard a word there or a, or a hook, and I've gone back. So maybe it's the slowing down and having the time to go looking for the lyrics or or changing direction. That, that's what COVID's done with me. It's made me go looking sometimes under the bonnet of some of the songs I've liked to, to, to check on the words. Yes, and it's very interesting to read lyrics as poetry on the page. And I like buying collections of lyrics and, and thinking about that, that if you take away the, the mind-altering influence of melody, um, what power do those words retain once they're simply letters on a page? Um, and, and often they're, they're surprisingly acute, even as, as the written word. When I finished reading Preservation, you might remember a couple of years ago, um, I think I emailed you and said, you bugger, um, there's got to be another book. Um, let's talk about the book that followed Preservation. Tell us all a little bit about The Burning Island and uh, where, where the whole idea of this book came from. Well, it, it starts with probably a deeper notion than the story of preservation, which was that I had always felt that there was this 50-year period in the history of the Furneaux Islands in Bass Strait. So this is the eastern half of Bass Strait facing the Tasman Sea. Um, that there was a 50-year period where Australian history was being very, very forcefully influenced by this tiny little collection of granite islands in Bass Strait. And I wanted to tell the entire story of those 50 years and the way that they did influence history. Um, when I started out, I thought it was one novel in three parts. And it very quickly became apparent when I started trying to tell the story of, of the Sydney Cove that, in fact, they were at least three novels, if not even more than that. Um, there's a lot to talk about. 
So Preservation is set in 1797. It's the story um, based on a true story of this shipwreck and the survivors who had to walk from... Uh, the ship was wrecked in the Ferno Islands. They managed to get a small rowboat to Gippsland, and then they had to walk from there to Sydney. So it's the story of that trek. Um, what that trek did in historical terms was that it alerted the world to the presence of Bass Strait. Up to that point, the European settlers didn't know it was there. Um, it alerted Sydney to the fact that there was a huge abundance of seals in the strait and that that was potentially a gold rush. Um, and it also brought up other discoveries like coal on the southern New South Wales coast, um, the forestry that was available to people in Gippsland and southern New South Wales. So it started this kind of industrial stampede and that led to settlement in the islands in around 1800 to 1830. Um, these settlements of sealers, which were largely lawless societies of people who were recluses. They just wanted to be on their own in the straits and away from authority because Sydney was a very authoritarian place. Um, and then subsequently to that, you have George Augustus Robinson, the missionary, coming in and trying to settle displaced Aboriginal people, Palawa people, from Tasmania on these islands. And that was misguided from the very beginning. It was a disaster and it led to all sorts of generational suffering. And by the time he closed the settlement in, in absolute ignominy in 1847, there's the end of your 50 years. And, and everybody kind of packs up their belongings and goes away and the islands go back to sleep. And I find that a really fascinating notion that it's only now that I think a lot of us are coming back to the islands to appreciate them for their, their ecological abundance and just their sheer beauty. But um, for a long, long time, the islands just sort of tipped into this slumber. You obviously are passionate and connected to these islands, the Furneaux Islands. Why? Uh, I was unaware of them until I was perhaps about 15 or 18. Uh, I have a very close mate who has a long family connection to the islands. He introduced me to them um, and he introduced all of his friends to them. And we used to go down there and have these ridiculous holidays among our mates. And, and there's lots of great memories and photographs from those days. But... Um, I think that I was struck more than just by the good times. I think I was struck by this very, very deep sense of history there, particularly Flinders Island. Very deep sense of history, um, a sense of something unresolved with Aboriginal people. And it's impossible to be there without feeling this very peculiar conflict between the extraordinary beauty of what you're seeing and the sense that there's this shadow over everything. And that um, has lodged itself. It's been something of a creative stone in my shoe for years and years and years. And um, it's only just in this past couple of years that I've started finding a way of writing about it and working through some of what I feel. It seems like your novels, or at least the most recent ones, are about journeys. What, what's... what's when you, when you write novels that ostensibly are about journeys... Um, what are the what are the things that you've got to do? You've obviously got a story uh, that, that starts, you've got a beginning and a middle and an end. I get that bit, but what are the difficult parts of constructing a story? And the interesting part of the Burning Island to me was that in some ways it's a journey in reverse of the last novel that we went up the coast, right? And this time 
you take us back a different way from from the sea. Like, what is it about journeys that fascinates you in, in your novels? Yeah, well, um, just taking up that last point first, when I wrote Preservation, there was a fork in the road very, very early on, which was the ship was wrecked in the islands and some of the survivors stayed with the ship in the islands and some of them were there for almost a year after the wreck. Some of them were the rescue party and their job was to get to Sydney. So there's a decision as to whether you follow the rescue party in your story or whether you stay with these people who are marooned. And and obviously I followed the walkers. So I had gone in one direction away from the islands very early in the book. And of course, that meant that I hadn't really scratched the storytelling itch about the islands. So I suppose one of the motivations to do it in reverse this time around was to come back to the islands and talk about them. Um, But I think to your wider point about journeys, what I think is going on is that you establish characters um, and give them their foundations in life. So with Eliza Grayling, I've given her um, this life of a spinster and she's a governess and she looks after her father and she goes to the market and she has a certain routine in the township of Sydney. And the journey, of course, gives you the ability to sweep all that out from under your character's feet. And that's how you really learn about the character. Um, So for each of the people on the boat, they are letting go of certitudes and they're letting go of their understanding of the world and opening themselves up to a kind of weirdness, I suppose, opening themselves up to being disorientated uh, and to the unexpected. And I think that... um, whether consciously or otherwise, I think a reader shares the same feeling that I understand these people, I understand the bedrock of their lives, and then suddenly we're spinning out of control. And that's kind of, I hope, the the exhilaration in the read. It is. um, The moment they're out of their comfort zones, um, they make decisions and they, they do and say things that they wouldn't normally do. Let's talk a little bit about Eliza Grayling. Um, why did you choose her to be the narrator of this novel? Mm. Um, because firstly, when I wrote Preservation, obviously I based a lot of that novel around Eliza's mother, Charlotte. And um, I really enjoyed writing Charlotte. And at first she was there as a kind of detective foil for her husband, Joshua Grayling, who's essentially trying to solve a mystery. But the more I wrote of her, the more I thought of her as this rebellious spirit and a subversive kind of character. And I wanted to continue that exploration in this book. Um, so I thought that a good way to do it, if I was moving the time frame 30, 32, 33 years forwards, that it would be really interesting to do that through her daughter. So I wanted a really similar perspective on the voyage. And also I felt that of the characters that I had written here, she was the one who was undergoing the most profound dislocation from her former life. She, she was really letting go of everything. Um, the only thing she hasn't let go of is her deep attachment to her father. And even that's coming under assault all of the time in this story. Mm. She and her mother share traits, I, I would agree, as a reader. But she's ornery and prickly and, <laughs> and a contrarian. And you sort of, as a reader, you, at the start you go, wow. But she's you've done a very good job with her because 
the connection with the reader has with her changes during that, particularly with her language and the way that she talks about her father, which which I'll come back to. Their relationship is is very interesting for another reason. Uh, you've given Joshua Grayling um, one of the most difficult uh, afflictions. Tell me why you chose, and, and by the way, you've also done a very interesting thing with Joshua. There's two Joshua Graylings. There's a Joshua Grayling in preservation, and there's the man that's in the second, the, the new book, The Burning Island. Firstly, why did you why did you do that to Joshua? Why did you give him that affliction? <laughs> it um it sounds like a weird kind of omniscience, doesn't it? <laughs> why did I curse him? Well, um, I'm trying not to give it away here because I want people <laughs> to read the book. But do you know what I mean? You know what I'm asking you. Why yeah. did you Why did you make him so different in the second book? There are two reasons. Um, I think the first is that perhaps in my life and, and the stage I'm at, I'm really interested in the idea that as your children become adults, they start to look back at you on, on a much more equal footing and that when they're small, you, you might get away with being this towering figure, but as they grow into adults, they're sceptical, they question everything and you are suddenly revealed in all of your weaknesses and your capacity for authority, your capacity, frankly, to impress anybody, <laughs> Um, is severely dented and it means that you have to reevaluate what you've got to offer your children and that's what's going on here. Eliza's 32 years old and, and Joshua keeps forgetting that. He thinks that she is still his dependent and she's not remotely his dependent. It's the opposite. Um, and that's, I guess, what happens to all of us as parents as time goes on and so you have to reevaluate your role. So... I suppose that Joshua being severely weakened by what he's going through um, highlights that point. The other big influence here was, and, and this kind of underscores the fact that when you research for a novel, sometimes you find the best stuff in the weirdest places. Um, the summer that I started writing The Burning Island, I was reading a memoir by A.A. A. Gill, the English journalist, called Poor Me, and the poor being spelt P-O-U-R, and it was about his years of alcoholism. And really what he talks about is not himself and how he suffered, but much more um, the effect on the people he loved, from having to live with an addict, from having to support an addict, um, and the kind of wild range between defiance and humour and um, horror and self-pity that, that the family and the addict all go through together. And to put Eliza and her father on a small boat together and, and with this kind of mad mission in, in their sights meant that I could explore that dynamic of what happens when you love and you choose to stay loyal to an addict. Hmm. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of issues in, in this book that you come out very directly, uh, alcoholism and addiction. Uh, and it was interesting for me reading it very recently um, where the whole issue of care, caring for our old people or not caring for them adequately in aged care facilities, for example. And it just seemed very prescient, the whole topic of who looks after us when we get frail or who looks after us when we get old or who look after us when we get sick. It seemed to me that Eliza had a lot of things going on uh, with, with her father, who was 
I think is ostensibly a good man. And I think right at the end of the book, the First Nations lady whose name I can't pronounce, but right at the end of the book, I think says to Eliza that her father was a good man and that she was a good daughter. I think that to me was the central idea of the whole book through all of the things that these two people had to put up with going back into what happened to her mum and all of the different challenges that had. She was a good daughter and he was a good father and, and a good man. Talk to me a little bit now about boats. I, I, I find, I just, when I read your books, I want to go away and find out about boats, vessels, things that sit on the water. Why did you choose the Moonbird, for example? I think it's a Danish boat. Well, you, you obviously love boats or it comes out in the book. Do you? Do you? Um, I have a funny relationship with boats. I do love them and I'm fascinated by them. Um, but I'm also a notorious klutz with boats and I, I'm not somebody to be trusted with boats is my <laughs> the lesson of my lifetime. Um, but I'm fascinated by their kind of psychic potential. I, I have this idea that boats are where you keep memories and um, that's why they work so well in storytelling, I think. And also a boat here, I needed a small boat and I needed the boat, this was only an instinctive idea, but I felt that I needed the boat to be an ally. I needed Eliza, for instance, to fall in love with the boat. And of all of the things that were going to go haywire, the boat needed to remain like this kind of, I think I I talked about it at one stage as being a trusty hound. It was kind of the old dog asleep at your feet. Um, so I was looking for a personality in the boat and that involved lots and lots of rifling through old books and magazines and websites, looking at different types of sailing vessels and trying to find the one that kind of suited that profile. Um, so a, a Danish schooner seemed to do the job. And um, it, it's interesting that, you know, the, the, the boats that were present in the colonies in those years were remarkably multicultural because... A, a lot of them came over with sealers and other people who were seeking fortunes, and B, the people who were the early shipwrights were themselves of a whole lot of nationalities. So the potential for there to be such an esoteric boat in Sydney at the time is reasonably good. Um, I called it the Moonbird because there is a writer called Patsy Adam Smith who wrote, I think, in the 50s, maybe 60s. Uh, she was a journalist, incredibly prolific Australian journalist, who really was a pioneer in terms of going out into extremely male domains like fishermen and inter-island trade in the Furneaux Islands and living on these boats with these men and documenting their lives. And um, she wrote um, a book called Moonbird People about those years. And, and Moonbird is a reference to shearwaters. Uh, it's also a reference to all of these ideas about the Pacific Ocean and the Shearwaters migratory path up to Siberia and um, the relationship between the moon and the, and the Pacific Ocean. It all the kind moonbird of... can smell, doesn't it, Jock? Yes. Doesn't the yeah. moonbird smell its way home or it's got the, the traits, it's got the ability that some other birds haven't got, isn't that? Yeah, that's right. So if, if you look at a picture of a shearwater, of a moonbird, they have long nostrils along the top of their beak and they have a keen sense of smell and they migrate from southeastern Australia, sort of Tasmania and Victoria, all the way to Alaska and Siberia and back. And they come back to exactly the same burrow. And a lot of that, there's all wow. sorts of mysterious processes in that, but one of them is smell. Mm. 
another thing that becomes obvious to, to to readers is not only that do you have a respect for boats, you have a respect for the skippers of boats. And I'd have to say that Argyle is one of the most interesting characters in the book and his knowing of the sea and, and his way that he's always in this book somewhere close at hand, smelling, watching, feeling what's going on. Have you have you sailed on boats with, with people like Argyle? Because I felt that you had. I feel like I've known people like Argyle, but I've, I don't think I've ever been on a vessel with one. Um, and I think what I mean by that is that Argyle is utterly alone and he's an extremely reclusive, solitary man. But um, perhaps where he invests all of his intimacy is with the ocean around him, that he's constantly watching and feeling and observing and sensing. Um, and maybe those are the traits that we devote to each other as social animals. And here's a guy who has removed himself from all of that and his closest relationship is literally with the elements around him. He has some, uh, some unusual habits um, and I won't, <laughs> I won't introduce those. I'll let the You'll be extremely careful about spoilers. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've, I've, you've noticed I've been very careful because I, I wanted to talk about that, but I must say when his particular habits came up early in the book, I did a silly thing and just thought, okay, um, I, I know what that's about. And then you changed the, the, my understanding of why he was doing certain things right at the end of the book, which I found equally interesting. Before we run out of time, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about language and the words you use, uh, and particularly in historical fiction. Tell me some of the books that sit on your desk when you write historical fiction on, on a book like The Burning Island. What, what sits on your desk, your reference books? Oh, well, there's a series of books written um, by, for instance, PhD and master's students about the time and the place and, and um, some of these characters, particularly first Australian characters. So there's that. Um, I, I read really widely away from the topic to try and find tone. Um, so I think at one stage along the way here, I was reading Henry James. I read A.A. Gill, as I mentioned. Um, I've been reading throughout the whole project of the two books and into a third one, I've been reading the diaries of George Augustus Robinson, the missionary, which are just completely fascinating and absolutely utterly mad. Um, he was vain to an extraordinary degree. He was a propagandist, um, but he was also obsessive about writing down his every waking thought. He wrote thousands and thousands of pages about what he was doing in those islands and indeed later on. Um, and that gave me a very good sense of the language. The, the, the game, I guess, in historical fiction with language is that you want to be authentic or at least plausible about the way people sounded and the words they used. But equally, if you get too antique about it, it, it can be quite an irritating reading experience. So you're trying to thread a line between the two things. And every now and then you can cut through and be sharply modern and it really stands out vividly against the rest of the language. You don't want to do it too often because it, it uh, starts to look contrived. But here and there, um, if you throw in a good swear word or if you throw in something blunt and caustic so that it doesn't look flowery and ornate, then it mixes up the language really nicely. 
You do it well, Jock. Your books are easy to read, um, but you always feel as a reader that you are also in that period. So it's a combination of uh, your sentences and your language and the words that you use. Um, I, this is a personal question I want to ask you. Did I visit Pipeline in Jervis Bay on the way down the coast? Yeah, you would have. So, of course, there's the wave um, There's the wave on Oahu called the Banzai Pipeline, which is a, a peak that breaks in both directions. There's a wave near Wreck Bay, uh, just outside Jer- Jervis Bay. Um, I've surfed it. Ah, <laughs> there and it what is. What I'm saying, did I visit it in the book? Oh, you did. Part where the, yeah. Yes, I'm you saying, did. I, I, I did, didn't I? Didn't you I, certainly I, did. I, I swore I was reading one day. I'm sitting in my study reading... And I was sure I was in the boat, sitting on the front, and I went into Jervis Bay, and there was a wave, and I felt like I was in. It's the most beautiful part of the coast, the pipeline. We we used to call it pipeline. So yeah, did yeah. I visit it? Yeah, absolutely and, correct. And in writing preservation, I went there and walked around and, and did a lot of photographing and noting and thinking. In writing Burning Island, um, circumstances were different, and. Um, uh, an uncomfortable amount of that work had to be done on Google Earth, which is not my favourite way of doing it. Yeah, you got it right, though. For someone who's been there, I, I knew where I was in the pages of a book in the middle of COVID. And oh, that's really those interesting. those of you who've never been to this beautiful place, Jervis Bay is, uh, is, is and was a special area for the Australian Navy. And uh, it was also First Nations people had land next door. You used to, in the old days drive down a road there through a place called Target. And it was called Target because they used to have um, practice, artillery practice and all sorts of stuff in that area. And we used to, as, when we were young kids, gravel in there when we shouldn't have. And in those days, in the, in the 70s, there was four or five people only in the water and it's an amazing surf spot. Um, you've half answered my final question, uh, which was, I got the feeling at the end of this book uh, that we weren't quite finished with the story either. Is is there a third book in in, in the trilogy? There is. Um, the aim is to close out that fifty year bracket that I was talking about earlier. Um, and the the really interesting thing, I think, I'm trying to avoid talking about these books as sequels to each other. Um, Michael Hayward at Text uses the expression book cycle, which is probably a more useful term because. Um, they're three books about a time and a place, but they're not necessarily the continuation of one narrative. So one of the early decisions in writing this third book has been, well, to what extent do you bring back the characters and continue them? Um, and to what extent can you properly leave them behind? It's You're trying to weigh up um, the interests of a reader who's read the first two books. You're trying to weigh up how to deliver the third story as crisply as you can. Um, there's a few different things at stake in doing it. And um, yeah, so I, I think I'm, I don't know, six or seven drafts into that third book um, and uh, they're getting progressively weirder and darker. <laughs> By the third book in a trilogy like this, has, is your working change, your habits changed? Like, Do you, you write all your books the same way? We've had this conversation a couple of times before over the years, but by the time you're working with what I'm going to call um, familiar material into that third book, has anything changed in the way you work? No, I, I feel like um, 
you know, as a fiction writer, you're often asked to do workshops about how you do do things. And often the answer is, look, I'm really not sure, but I'll take you through the various doubts I have. I, I've been writing novels for um, six or seven years now, um, and I'm quite sure I'm still working out how to do it. The method across all of the novels is evolving and separately it's evolving within this trilogy in, in a smaller sense. Um, you try to become more efficient about capturing your ideas and making sure that they're safely caged somewhere so that you can use them when you need them. I think early on um, I was more careless about ideas. They'd come and go and I'd forget them or I'd reinvent them in some other guise but now I'm really scrupulous about recording my thoughts as they occur to me and then filing them in various ways so that I can find them and apply them to the to the storytelling task. Um, so they're all things that are outside of, of physically writing down a story. They're kind of thinking habits, I guess. I implore all of you listening to this to get hold of The Burning Island. It's like all Jock's books. It's really easy to read. Um, it's a great narrative. Um, it's a story. And I'd say particularly in this book, it is one that when you start reading, if you have any inkling or idea of where you think it's going to go or where it's going to end, trust me, like <laughs> these others, you have no idea. And you got me again with this book. And uh, I'll share with you off camera where, where you got me. It's great to talk to you again, uh, Jock. Thank you for, to, for, for being part of Conversations from Byron. And we look forward to seeing you soon. It's a great pleasure, Chris. I'd love to be back up there again. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.